I asked you to dig up something I can use against Firefly. Did you bring me his record? No, no! And the boy gets a cigar. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast. Episode 51, Speaking of Speaking of Harpo. Students of Huxley, this is Noah Diamond, and I'm here with Matthew Conium. Hello, Matthew. Hello. So what did you really think about Bob? Well, I'm glad you asked me. I, I've been trying to find the words, um, and so I got a dictionary of slang, and I found a lot of them. <laughs> uh, I do sense a, a presence, another presence besides you and me, Matthew, but it, something is just different somehow, but I, it still feels like he's here, doesn't it? It'll take ages to wash the stains out of the carpet. (laughs) We are referring, of course, to our producer, Bob Gassell, accompanying us on the keyboard right this very moment. If you uh, heard our mini-episode from last month, you know that Bob has taken off his hosting hat, but is still very much with us as the man who makes it all happen. Um, We are also joined by a special guest, You undoubtedly remember her from episode 38 of this show, Help of Those Kids. And you may also recall her excellent commentary from There's Nothing Like Liberty, The Marx Brothers, and America. Here is our returning champion, classic film educator, Hannah Mira. Welcome back, Hannah. It is lovely to be here. I'm so honored to be here on the first episode of Bob transitioning over to a strange interlude. That's going to be a lot of fun. (laughs) We are happy to have you. Before we get the ball rolling uh, in the housekeeping department, I want to mention that in addition to Bob's changing role on the podcast, in last month's mini episode, we dropped the big news that at the beginning of 2023, which is coming right up, we will be introducing a subscription program through Patreon. The podcast you know and tolerate will still be available every month for free, as always. But soon, for the low monthly fee of your choice, you'll be able to access an even richer Marx Brothers Council podcast experience with bonus segments, additional content, original artwork uh, in print, and of course, more. So there will be details about that soon. We also have a beautiful new website. MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com has been given a fresh coat of paint and some new features. It's mobile-friendly. And uh, it's friendly in general. So take a look. MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com for all your Marx Brothers Council podcast needs. So July of this year saw the publication of Speaking of Harpo, the long-awaited posthumous memoir of Susan Fleming Marx. Susan, of course, was a stage and film performer of the 20s and 30s and the love of Harpo Marx's life. The book is edited by Robert S. Bader and published by Applause. Obviously, there will be spoilers ahead. And if you haven't read the book and don't want to hear too much about it, then what are you doing listening to an episode about it? (laughs) Spoiler warning achieved. Um, I thought we'd start with some general impressions, both of the book and of its author, someone we've been aware of for so long, but we all feel like we know a lot better now than we did uh, just some a uh, few months ago. Hannah, would you care to get us started? What are your general impressions of the book? How did you feel about it? Well, I thought it was it was quite fun 
to hear about Harpo's life from another point of view, from someone that was so, so close to him. It was just so evident how much she adored this man. Like it just came through the text, just how much the sun sort of rose and set uh, for her in, in Harpo. And I admired the fact that she didn't really um, cut any corners when she discussed uh, the rest of the brothers. Um, there definitely seemed to be, you know, no, no love lost at moments when she discussed, you know, Chico and, and, and Groucho and even, you know, uh, Gummo at times. So that was kind of interesting as, as well to hear about just how much she adored her husband and how she undoubtedly loved her brothers-in-law as well, but she did give a very, um, we'll say from her perspective, a very honest insight into perhaps some of their more shortcomings. Absolutely. And we will certainly, as the conversation continues, unpack some of the specific things she has to say uh, about each of Harpo's brothers and, of course, Harpo himself. Uh, But before we do that, uh, Matthew, uh, what do you think of the book overall? My first impressions are are very fresh because I only got it a couple of weeks ago and I only read it this week so it's all very fresh um yeah I mean uh, it's it most of the uh most of the stories are familiar but it's but so many of them have got a just a a different angle on them or a slightly different take on them which which I found very interesting um the, the the big surprise the biggest surprise I I guess is that I I was expecting a lot of groucho bashing and there really isn't much I mean there, there's there's the the, the usual criticism that, that he made jokes at his wife's expense, um, that, that's there. But she actually walks back some of her criticism, doesn't she, from, um, from the scrapbook when, when she's, she's talking about him um, continuing to perform in, in his dotage. She, uh, she's, she's more reticent about that. Um, and I thought her account of him uh, standing in for Harper at Minnie's wedding was very moving um, and very sincere. Um, she criticizes Chico for, for all the expected reasons, and she um, intriguingly describes Zeppo at one point as a strange man who even his brothers never completely understood. Um, but, but the one who comes in for the most stick, I think, is poor old Gummo, isn't it? Who, who she depicts throughout as a, a kind of inadvertently malign schmuck. Yes, indeed. And uh, since you've, you've both uh, centered it in your impressions of the book, maybe that's a good place to start with it, her opinions of the Marx Brothers. Uh, I think it is certainly true that what you say certainly occurred to me, Matthew. I, I did expect the book to be rougher on Groucho, and I think some of the advance word made us expect that. Um, but it's true that none of the negative things she says about Groucho are surprising or fresh. Um, but there are quite a few nice things she says about him, uh, humanizing things she says about him. I thought it was very interesting. As, as you mentioned, she, she seems to walk back some of what she said in the scrapbook without quite mentioning the scrapbook by name. Um, but she says, I gave one interview in which I was probably a little too honest about Groucho's performing capabilities in his old age. In retrospect, I should have declined the interview. I, I, I like how she says I was... Not incorrect, but I was just honest. That's an interesting word to use. Yeah, and you get the sense that in general, that was part of her personality. She was very candid and forthright and opinionated. Uh, Not unpleasant, but um, not a very high tolerance for nonsense. I I like when she talks about 
as we all know, Harpo had a history with women named Fleming. Um, and when she talks about Harpo's reluctance to commit to her because he had had trouble in the past with a girlfriend named Fleming, I love the way she says, I'm paraphrasing, but she basically says, I could have done without this problem because what did it have to do with me? I thought, oh, I, I, I would have loved to to hear her say that to him. Yeah. Like that goes in your book, Harpo, but what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> and with Chico, I thought, yeah, she, she doesn't mince words about her um, unhappiness with Chico and what she calls uh, his abhorrent lifestyle. But on the plus side, uh, she does confirm something we've, uh, encountered here and there, but not often, which is that Chico really was interested in animals. Yes. <laughs> and it's one yes. of those little facts about him that makes us w- want to know more. She describes uh, an event um, when Harpo and Chico were appearing in Britain, and they did a photo shoot with Glynis Johns at the London Zoo. And Susan says, Chico was very interested in animals, and he had many questions for the gentleman from the London Zoological Society. Uh, that's another nice uh, little, uh, I guess, somewhat humanizing uh, statement about a Marx brother. Yeah, so that so that makes Chico and Harpo animal lovers. Groucho, I don't know if she touches on it in the in the book. I don't recall, but Groucho doesn't strike me as a huge animal lover. Uh, he had cats. I mean, we know he had a lot of affection for his cats, but that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's probably right. Well, it seems pretty natural that Harpo would love animals. But Chico, because we don't know nearly as much about his personality, we know about his vices um, and some of his virtues. That's true. We always seem to lead with, you know, he was a gambling addict. It's like, and, but there's more to that sentence. We we, we know that he had this, this addictive personality, but that there was also other components of him as well that, you know, as Susan is pointing out, were positive. He wasn't just this completely negative specter. But also, it's interesting, you know, that he's 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 not just an animal lover. He he seems to be he seems to have had a genuine, uh, you know, academic interest in the subject. And uh, I'm not aware of him having a genuine academic interest in in anything other than his vices. So it is, you know, there's, it, it's typical of the book actually, in that the. the the book is full of little hints and of things that you just wanted to say a bit more about. You know, I'd love to know exactly what he was asking that 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 zookeeper. You know, um, and there's a, obviously a, a, a lovely quote which I'm sure you've all um, underlined, so I'm going to get it in first, um, where she says. Um, uh, if you believe what he wrote in Harpo Speaks, we got married practically the moment he got back to Hollywood from that trip. But that otherwise wonderful book should not be something by which you set your clocks. And I'd love to know a bit more of her, her thoughts on Harpo Speaks, but we we just get these little hints. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are interest. It's very interesting to hear her versions of stories that are familiar to us, mostly from Harpo Speaks, also from Bill's book, Son of Harpo Speaks. Um, and getting this kind of uh, Marxian Rashomon, where we get the same tale, but from a slightly different angle, uh, sometimes with significant departures. Uh, but before we explore that, um, we've we've touched on her her statements about Groucho and Chico. Um, let's just cover the other two non-Harpo brothers briefly. Uh, I agree with what you say about Gummo. He, he does come off somewhat badly in the book. Um, Gummo was without passion. Uh, she says, and, and he was the only one of the, the brothers who 
in her view, uh, didn't inherit Minnie's uh, happy optimism. Uh, even Groucho, she grants that to, but uh, not Gummo. I, I wonder if some of what she has to say about Gummo, we might temper it with the understanding that Gummo's job was to represent the Marx Brothers as an act. He was trying to get them work in that late period, um, you know, for the benefit of all of them, um, particularly Chico, because Chico was the neediest. Um, but I can understand why, you know, if you were Harpo's wife, you know, and were particularly cared about <clears throat> the welfare of your spouse, um, it might seem like the uh, working welfare of the Marx Brothers as a show business entity doesn't seem important at all. Um, but it, it was important to many of the other parties involved. And also, of course, that, that he seems to have at least partially uh, convinced Harpo to, to undergo that, that final, perhaps not entirely necessary, medical procedure. Obviously, that's, that's going to be something that she can never quite uh, put to the back of her mind, isn't it? Well, she, she also, I believe, brings up a few times about how Gummo in general had a sort of fascination with medicine and how he had occasionally, you know, tried to give Harpo advice or connect Harpo with doctors. And she didn't always think that he was the most qualified person to be doing that. Yeah, she and she has similar things to say about Gummo's financial advice, too. You know, Gummo was considered yeah. the financial expert because he had a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. Um, I think maybe the other brothers were very happy to let Gummo attend to some of those practical details. And Susan was the person, you know, not totally on the sidelines, but somewhere between the sidelines and the arena uh, saying, you know, uh, wait a minute, this has a lot to do with my children's future. So maybe we question if everything this guy has to say is wise. So going back to Chico, one thing that I had highlighted that I was not aware of before so Susan talks about how he was hitting on his daughter's high school classmates. That was quite an uncomfortable moment for me to read, um, because obviously that's not something that you want to think about any adult man doing. Um, so what are our thoughts on that? It's one of those things that is just not okay. It was never okay. You know, it, it may have been um, less talked about or less, um, there may have been less public shaming around things like that in previous eras. But uh, yeah, not cool. And we know that there is a lot about Chico, particularly uh, Chico and his attitude toward women, that is depicted in the usual Marx Brothers literature as charming and funny, and Chico's such a rascal. Um, and mm -hmm. I know, you know, there is some value in in telling the story that way sometimes. Um, but mm -hmm. you know, I think we also have to just look the thing in the eye and say Chico was uh, something of a predator. Uh, that he had a problem and it, it was not okay. And um, Susan is, um, it, it makes sense that Susan would be the narrator in this crowd who is comfortable coming out and saying what I think, uh, what I hope most of us are thinking. And obviously, I mean, when you when you consider that that, that his his life had basically been for, uh, going from, you know, a, a pretty poor kind of anything goes childhood into New York, and then almost instantly from there in, into show business, where louche uh, behaviors are vastly more tolerated. Um, you know, if if you if you had those 
sort of proclivities, that was the worst possible training ground for, for keeping them under lock and key, wasn't it? Well, there seems to be just kind of in in general a stronger manifestation of inappropriate slash addictive behavior in Chico as opposed to all of the other brothers where he just really struggled to control himself in a way that we would consider to be socially acceptable. You know, the, the detail about Chico from the book that uh, unlike some of the unfortunate sexual predatory stuff was news to me is that Chico faked a heart attack to get out of a booking and didn't bother to tell his family that he hadn't really had a heart attack. Uh, I mean, that is pretty advanced um, something. And and as an illustration of that fact, even Harpo seems to have been very cross with Chico about that. And we know um, from other stories and also from Susan's account that Harpo had a hard time being angry at Chico. Yeah, there is d- definitely there seems to be a little more of it the edge of the um of the elusive huckster, a little bit of the hustler in in Chico that he could never completely shake even when he was older and we want to think quote unquote kind of calm down. Um he still had that sort of uh desire to do what he wanted to do by any means necessary. He always put Chico first and perhaps that was part of the reason also why Susan had a lot of issues. Uh, with his behavior, because she felt that he did always put himself first, even if it was at the expense of Harpo or or the other brothers or the act itself. Now, when when did she say that happened? That 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 faked heart attack. It's in the Love Happy period, um, in the the lead up to Love Happy, I think. P- page one ninety seven is what I've got here. I've got that in. I've got that in in the annotated. Um, but oh. as uh, as I put it, and I must have got this from somewhere, he uh, he did have a mild heart attack, and then announced his retirement. But then um, realised that he was in absolutely no position to to retire, so retracted the the announcement of his retirement. But there was a mild heart attack. Um, is what I've got, and I can no longer remember exactly, you know, what my sources and things were there. Oh, good to know. Well, I I stand corrected on the, on the heart attack being news, but I guess the I guess the bluntness of Chico faked a heart attack. Um, her putting it that way um, that that was that did make an impression on me. Or and she also says Chico's selfishness had no limits. It clearly never occurred to him that his behavior caused his brothers a lot of pain and anguish. Another Chico moment that I thought was a a little surprising is um, during the chapter when uh, they're in they're in England. Harpo and Chico have some double bookings coming up at the Palladium together, Um, but. Until then, Chico is doing solo appearances, and Harpo goes to see Chico's act so that he can see what the material is like and how to combine it with his own solo act for the Palladium appearance. Susan writes, Harpo decided to catch Chico's act at the Hippodrome, and what he saw made him nervous. After the show, he came back to the hotel almost in tears. It's blue! All his jokes are dirty! It won't work at the Palladium! You know, that one of the many things we can wish we had film on is the dirty show mm. Chico Marx was doing at the <laughs> Who do you think would be his most kind biographer? Like, did anyone adore Chico the way Susan adored Harpo? His daughter, Maxine, wrote, um, or 
perhaps co-wrote a uh, that's true yeah a, a very uh, adoring book about her father and um it's a charming book and although we are very aware that it's a sanitized uh yeah. version of chico uh, you know of all the people in the world we could accept that from you know she sees him the way a daughter would want to see her father i think She's under no illusions, though, about as to his faults, is she? No. She's just, she just says, you know, that you, you, you could, you literally couldn't help loving him, you know, even even if you wanted to. He just had this this lovable quality, which which is, I guess, why he was able to to get away with so much. And that's sort of a repeat topic in Harpo's life. Like he loves the incorrigibles, right? He hangs out with Wolcott. He hangs out with Levant. You know, he surrounds himself with people that a lot of people would consider to be very challenging personalities. But Harpo just loved them for who they are. And obviously Chico even closer because that was his brother. But um, Harpo seems to just sort of accept people, you know, for lack of a, of a better cliche, just for, for who they were, which is what attracted so many people probably to to Harpo and, and to his circle because of the warmth and because of the um, the acceptance. Yeah. Um, one thing uh, that stuck out to me that I actually highlighted in my book when she was talking about Zeppo is she said that Zeppo treated the notion of fatherhood like a present he had to get for his wife, and that's a pretty cutting remark to make about someone's fatherhood parenting prowess. Actually, that was one of the most interesting parts of the book where she compares Harpo and Zeppo as parents. Um, I thought that was very interesting. And, and uh, it's, it, I mean, it's always nice to get a little bit more flesh on the bones of, of people like Zeppo and Chico because we, you know, we, we do know so little about them. So I, I thought that was particularly, uh, particularly interesting. If you look at all of the, you know, brothers as fathers, it's like, who would you have want to have been your father? And it seems like after reading the books that Harpo and Susan created, what seems to be the most, quote unquote, functional and happy home for their children, again, based on their own respective accounts. Yeah, it doesn't even sound like any of the other Marx brothers would challenge that, you know, I mean, I suppose we can't say with certainty whether Gummo would or not. But I don't yeah. think Zeppo would ever claim to be a better father than Harpo or, or yeah. anybody. I know Groucho wouldn't. And I know mm-hmm. Chico wouldn't, you know. Uh, Harpo yeah. valued those things in a, I think, a more genuine way. Mm-hmm. I think the line about Zeppo treating fatherhood as a, a, a present he had to get his wife, in addition to being so interesting and insightful, is one of many examples throughout the book of just really good writing. I'm, one of the things that makes the book such a treat is that Susan was very expressive. She was really good at putting these things in words. And I think as far as insider accounts from people close to the Marx Brothers, who were not Marx Brothers themselves, this is just a richer and more insightful text than we usually get. Uh, Partly, I think it's because she had no interest in writing a showbiz memoir. Yeah, she's she's very eloquent. A lot of delightful turns of phrase, like where she refers to Harpo as my favorite architect of the unexpected. Mm. It's just what what a, what a lovely way to describe someone that just keeps you on your toes, but in a way that you actually enjoy throughout your relationship. Uh, before we leave the subject of Zeppo, um, I I thought it was very interesting the way she contrasted Zeppo and Chico as gamblers. Uh, we we have sometimes, you know, it's interesting to point out, yeah, we all know Chico was a gambler and a sort of semi-criminal or at least <laughs> had uh, rubbed shoulders in the world of organized crime. 
Uh, we know that was true of Zeppo also. Susan, uh, for one thing, draws a distinction saying uh, Zeppo was a true gambler as opposed to Chico. Zeppo was only interested in winning. Uh, Chico, as we know, was happy to lose if, if the action was exciting. Yeah, I have that highlighted too in my book actually right here. It's a great, it's a great yeah, insight into the fact that you can have similar behaviors in two brothers, but entirely different motivations behind it. And and consequently, Zeppo didn't have the kind of financial trouble that Chico had. He also had more sources of income, and and I suppose yeah. that was important too. Um, and then later on, um, Susan writes about um, being at a party with Mickey Cohen and other organized crime figures in Hollywood. And she says, I was surprised to see Zeppo cruise around the room, greeting many of the scariest looking of Mickey Cohen's pals as if they had been <laughs> lifelong friends. I asked Harpo about it, and all he said was, yeah, that's Zepp. Yeah, Zepp seems to be, like, as enigmatic off-screen as he is on-screen. Like, you, you, you never really, his character never really gels, either in real life or on celluloid. And uh, that almost makes him more fascinating in real life than he is on screen. She's generally very good, I think, at drawing drawing distinctions between them, because, you know, the tendency is, is to... to focus on the similarities and and the way they mesh together and the way one sort of you know um compensates for defects in the other and things like that you know but um she actually says at one point doesn't she where she she's written a bit about them and she says uh these thumbnail sketches are only to reveal the extraordinary dissimilarity of brothers raised in a close environment uh unpressured by warm loving parents with a sense of humor so you know she she is very very keen to um to, to point out the differences which is which, uh, you know, again, is not something we, we've got a lot of in other memoirs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and speaking of other memoirs, uh, maybe this is the time to, uh, to draw some distinct comparisons, especially with Harpo's book. Uh, I thought it was good to learn uh, the answers to some questions that we actually asked back in episode 48 um, when we talked about Harpo Speaks, we were wondering out loud about the genesis of Harpo Speaks, and there were some things we weren't quite clear on as far as how that book came to be. And Susan spells it out pretty clearly in the preface to her book uh, that the idea came from Bernie Geis, uh, the publisher and editor, who had gotten other uh, celebrities uh, who were friends of his, like Art Linkletter and Groucho, to write their memoirs. And that Geist just naturally thought, oh, well, Harpo should do a book too. And and he suggested it, and he recruited Roland Barber to be Harpo's co-author. And, and Harpo and Barber, of course, hit it off. So there's our answer, uh, dear listeners. That's the genesis of Harpo Speaks. Uh, is there anything that particularly struck you about um, where this book uh, meets and diverges from Harpo Speaks? I mean, one thing that just kind of spoke to me from a stylistic difference is how Harpo Speaks um, in some ways almost feels very train of thought. It's like sort of writing, you know, a, you know, a kind of an errant roller coaster and it's quite wild and it's quite, um, it's quite uh, whimsical and it's quite unique and it's very enjoyable to read, um, 
but just the voice and the narrative is obviously quite different than than Susan's books, obviously, because they are, you know, different uh, voices speaking, but you get a sense of the absurdity in Harpo Speaks that you obviously don't get in speaking of Harpo, which again sort of kind of serves to illustrate the counterbalance that these two probably had in, in, in real life. Yes, and also I think Harpo makes a point um, of keeping his, his his author's voice uh, very, very neutral because he, he starts the book by saying, there's nothing interesting about me off screen. I'm, I'm a kind of a blank canvas, but I was lucky enough to have passed through all these interesting things. So he sort of just relates what's happening um, in, in, in the, uh, almost in the, in the spirit of reportage, whereas Susan is more of an observer and uh, she, she, she reaches and shares conclusions uh, that, that Harpo doesn't, I think. Yeah, she's a, a little more analytical than he is, too. He, he's reporting. Um, uh, her book is a little bit more uh, more thoughtful than his, in a way. Not that his book is, is not thoughtful. Um, but she is a little more aware that she's handling uh, the stuff of legend. Um, one specific thing that jumped out at me is the difference between Harpo's and Susan's accounts of how they met and their early courtship. They are obviously telling the same story and there are many details that match up. But one huge aspect of Harpo's version of the story that's totally missing from Susan's and from Susan's book in general. Harpo depicts Susan as having been a fairly obsessed Marx Brothers fan and even kind of a stalker. I mean, Susan meets him at this party in Harpo Speaks and and says that she is a prowler. She uh, has been spying on him. She recognizes that his personal dog named Ko was also the dog who was with him in Horse Feathers. Um, so Harpo presents it very much as a fan and a pretty passionate fan meeting a hero. Um, and that is a charming aspect of the story as Harpo tells it. Well, I, I don't want to question I, I'm sure there's some truth to that if if Harpo says it and if Susan uh, allowed him to say it in the book. But what do you make of the absence from Susan's book of really any uh, pre-existing Marx Brothers fandom? Well, and that's the question, right? Like, is it a matter of artistic license on Harpo's part or is it a matter of kind of maybe self-serving omission on Susan's part? You know, is it particularly flattering to be the person that was obsessed with your husband before you even start dating? Or was this just something that she didn't feel the need to speak on? Or possibly, I suppose, that that was something that she deliberately uh, gave the impression of at the time of their, of their early courtship, you know, to, to, to ingratiate herself with him. Uh, and then obviously, uh, you know, did, didn't want to, uh, to undermine while he was alive. Yeah. And there are things, you know, just kind of in general, I mean, I, I won't leave this topic really, but that she will touch on for just a dab and then she'll move on from. And like in the, in the bit where she talks about wanting to have children and she tells Harper, we have to get some children. And he's like, okay, but in one sentence I had an early hysterectomy and that's it. And early hysterectomy usually has a lot of stories behind it, especially back during, you know, pre-row and all that kind of time. So I'm curious how much of that has a deeper, you know, thing that she's just not about to talk about. 
I was wondering, to be honest, if there was going to be any any discussion of that, because I I had sort of independently uh, reached that conclusion and wondered if it dated from the period where she kind of disappears from the scene after that first film, um, because originally that that no that film wasn't. Uh, something that that was officially it wasn't on our IMDb page or anything like that, and it was something that that, that we ferreted out and um, uh, and um, and put on the on the blog um, about it, um, and so I, I was wondering if if the book was even going to confirm that, which obviously luckily uh, it does in in uh, in spades. But then um, I, I I was also looking for that other thing, and and I suspect they are adjacent. Yeah, because I mean, when you think about women back then and their options in terms of family planning, it was pretty pretty bleak. And for other stars, you know, Joan Crawford, Barbara Stanwyck, who had been you know rendered unable to have children due to previous botched procedures, um, things like hysterectomies and so forth and so on were sometimes the only option, and that would ultimately lead them to a life where they um, adopted to start families. And again, whether or not a woman, Susan or anyone else wants to discuss that aspect of their life is, you know, an entirely personal choice. But in this book, you know, her inability to biologically have children was probably part of the genesis of them having this massive, lovely, blended, adopted family that they all brought in together. You know, if she'd been able to carry children, they may not have ended up adopting these four wonderful children and having this like just rich, beautiful family. So that is one thing I would have loved to have heard have heard her discuss a little bit more. But again, that probably came from a deeply private and possibly painful place that she didn't want to talk about. There's also an interesting bit, isn't there, which, uh, I mean, I haven't read Harpo Speaks in a long time, so so correct me if I'm wrong, and, and it is in there, but I don't remember it being in there, where she discusses uh, the time when she told them all that they were adopted. Yeah. yeah. And they do like the, the bedtime stories where they would like sit down with the kids and tell the kids like the journey to find each one of them and how like magical that was for each of the children. And, you know, just thinking about, in, in my career, you know, I work with children from all kinds of backgrounds, you know, and, and, you know, I've taught children, like, you know, when I was teaching at the hall, a third to a fourth of my kids were either, you know, in foster care or adopted. And the journey from bio parents to adopted parents is not always a smooth one. There's often a lot of trauma in there. And for Susan and Harpo to be able to take their children's journey from birth to their home and make it this kind of fun fairy tale bedtime story. That's a really cool way to, you know, incorporate their journey and their individual narratives and make it a positive thing instead of a very deeply traumatic thing, which can be the case sometimes for adoptive children. Yeah, they Harpo and Susan both seem to have just been such um good people and good parents. And of course, it is from their own accounts that we're deriving this. So uh, mm-hmm. if you want to take a grain of salt with that, fine. But I, it's it really does seem to be the case. And I think if you've had even uh, a small interaction with any of their children, um, it, that's apparent too from, you know, just the people that they grew up to be. Um, it just mm-hmm. does seem to be a family that anyone would feel lucky to be a part of. And I think as far as the undisclosed details about the hysterectomy mm-hmm. or or why biological childbirth wasn't an option, I think it, it is clearly a personal decision not to say more. And that's, of course, that would be okay under any circumstances, but it's particularly okay because 
by that time in the book, we trust Susan. She has not sanitized much, you know? She's very frank about uh, the era and show business, especially regarding sex. I mean, she doesn't really pull any punches about the state of virtual prostitution that many Ziegfeld girls were forced to live in. Um, You know, she doesn't sugarcoat the 1920s um, or, or the Broadway or Hollywood scenes she was a part of. So, you know, we know that it's not that she's um, being shy about raising difficult subjects. It's that there are some things she's just not going to put in a book. And of course that's her right. She actually says somewhere, doesn't she? Something like, um, the people think that the 1920s were this wonderfully uh, glamorous era, but they, but it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, she just sort of leaves it there, you know. But no, it wasn't. Yeah. Well, and I, I think to your point also, Noah, we, we do feel that Susan is a reliable narrator. We do find her account to perhaps be, if we look between the two, I, I don't want to say one is more trustworthy than the other, but she does seem a bit more reliable and Harpo seems a bit more of a flight of fancy. Now it, it is probably definitely rooted, you know, in fact, but there does seem to be a little more artistic license at times with some of his stories about, you know, driving the the getaway car for the madam who was involved in the murders and all those types of things. You know, it's like, is this exactly what happened or are we putting a bit of a Marxian spin on it? And that's kind of for us to, to, to think about and muse about and enjoy. But I think you bring up a good point about her being a little more of a reliable narrator. And, and Harpo is an entertainer, you know, and writing his memoir is not the same as the rest of what he does as an entertainer. But, you know, he is still trying to, I think, please the crowd with his book. Uh, he's playing to his audience. He's getting laughs. Um, these are all good things about the book. But Susan is very much not an entertainer by choice. I mean, not to say the book isn't entertaining. It is. And she's a, a, a very good writer. Uh, but this is someone who accidentally stumbled into the thing that so many people want, which is Broadway and Hollywood semi-stardom. And Mm -hmm. she just isn't interested. Um, She Mm -hmm. says so often in the early pages of the book, uh, things like, it didn't really mean anything to me. I didn't care about it. Didn't matter to me. She says that so often that normally I would say, I think, you know, uh, she's she doth protest too much. That's too much, yeah. That's the same thing. And yet it doesn't seem insincere. My favorite example of that is um, it's a very funny uh, line where she says, uh, she's talking about a film she made called Break of Hearts. And she says, the only noteworthy thing about Break of Hearts is that it enables me to add Catherine Hepburn and Charles Boyer to the list of stars I can barely remember working with. <laughs> well, she has a lovely sort of, a, you know, take on... A, a career that, you know, whether or not she intended to become a star, wanted to become a star, it didn't happen in the way that perhaps she wanted or intended it to happen. But she's able to look back and with kind of a, a you know, a rise sort of reflection about it, which is enjoyable. She seems to be saying more or less, like, if I had been, if I had considered myself a greatly talented actor, then I might have been an actor but she obviously didn't consider herself that talented she says more than Mm -hmm. once you know that it was her physical beauty that got her as far as she got um now i i happen to think if particularly if you watch million dollar legs which is the best example as she acknowledges Mm -hmm. she did have talent i mean she actually Mm -hmm. is really great in that movie um she has a great screen presence um 
And of course, we're interested in her anyway, so we were willing to meet her halfway. Um, but I think she was a little uh, harder on herself than necessary. On the other hand, if you don't have a passion to be in show business, even if you do have talent, I don't know why you'd go through it. I really don't. And she seems to have done it mostly to support her parents for as long as it was absolutely necessary. Uh, on the subject of her show business career, it is interesting, as she points out, how often the same people who facilitated the Marx Brothers career at various times uh, facilitated her career. Um, she crosses paths with Ned Wayburn, George Kaufman, Eddie Bazell. Uh, Herman Mankiewicz gets her the role in, in Million Dollar Legs. Some of these things happen after she is with Harpo, but a lot of them happen before. I don't know if that's if those are wild coincidences or just an indication of what a small world show business was in the United States at the time. One of my favorite sort of um, characters that comes up in both books in terms of their, you know, connections to Hollywood is the sort of haunting specter of Oscar Levant sort of showing up and being in a horrible mood and just sort of, you know, wandering around complaining in, in his wry way that he does and then having a nervous breakdown and then leaving and, and, and coming back. I read his, um, the biography on him, A Talent for Genius, The Life and Times of Oscar Levant, and it is by Sam Kashner and Nancy Schoenberger. Um, as we know, Levant was an incredibly complex man, very tortured, a lot of neuroses, a lot of idiosyncrasies, addictive behavior. Um, the author does a fabulous job, and I'm going to look it up in a minute. Maybe we can patch that in later, uh, who the author is on the top of my head. But um, the book is phenomenal, but it was cool to see the snapshots of Levant from Susan's point of view and then from Harpo's point of view, because I always found Levant such a interesting character in Hollywood that you don't really hear a whole ton about outside of, you know, the movies he popped up in here and there and the sort of, you know, uh, literary circles that he sort of, he sort of dabbled in. First of all, we'll put that book on our list and that, that could be a future episode. There is a play opening in New York soon about Oscar Levant with uh, Sean Hayes uh, in <gasps> the lead role. Um, I love Sean Hayes. He's yeah, wonderful. I could really see that. So <laughs> yeah. maybe that'll be an opportunity to talk about it. No, I sometimes think with these Marx Brothers books that Oscar is there to make Groucho seem warm and sunny. <laughs> <laughs> um, the incidental player that, that, that caught my attention most was, was uh, Gustav Eckstein, the... Um, the scientist uh, and and uh, canary expert um, in 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 the Walcott circle, who she says was the model for Dr. Metz in in the Man Who Came to Dinner. Um, I I'd, I'd never heard of him, so I spent um, a pleasant afternoon um, looking him up. And uh, there's a, there's an, quite an interesting little short piece about him online by one of his colleagues. Um, and he re he really does sound like a, a kindred spirit. Uh, to, to Harpo, um, he describes him as a, a slight man with a shock of unruly hair atop a too large head and a floppy hand-tied bow tie beneath his chin. He says, um, the entrance to his laboratory was unique. The door was always closed. In front of the door was a screen door. There was a doorbell beside the screen door with a large sign reading, do not enter, ring the bell. When you rang it and waited, Dr. Gus would eventually appear wearing a large straw farmer's hat. 
The reason for all this was the fact that a small flock of free-flying canaries lived in his lab. He did not want them loose in the college building, hence the screen, the sign and the doorbell. And when they became excited, he wanted to spare himself their droppings, hence the straw hat, as well as the newspapers that were spread over all the surfaces in the lab, including the piano, which he kept there to play when the spirit moved him. So I thought that was very nice um, to, uh, to, to have mentioned him. It's an amazing visual. You can almost see Harpo recreating that role, just sitting there in a straw hat surrounded by birds and a piano. Yeah. So he's, a, he's an interesting guy. His last published book had a lovely title, The Body Has a Head. I've no idea what it's about, but it's a great title. <laughs> um, perhaps we should have uh, addressed this when we were talking about Susan's comments on the brothers, but it's just occurred to me, um, we haven't actually talked much about her what she has to say about harpo um were there any surprises for either of you in there is anything uh, about harpo that you didn't know or were surprised to run into yeah one thing in the preface that caught my eye she says it shouldn't come as any surprise that much was left unspoken in our marriage yes that's an odd thing she says that again later on, I think, doesn't she? That um, mm-hmm. she she didn't get much from him, and that she was surprised when she read Harpo speaks. Uh, uh, you know, a, a lot of that stuff she didn't know. I was surprised to, and I think I, this wasn't exactly new information, but it was just um, expressed in much more detail and in much more human terms than I've seen it before. Is the idea that Harpo was a hypochondriac? Uh, surprising, isn't it? I, it's. Um, I, I think maybe we've gotten some indication of that before. That, that toward the end of his life, part of the reason for getting the surgery that wound up uh, that he wound up not surviving uh, did have to do with this very deep concern about his health. But uh, I don't know that I've heard him described so bluntly as a hypochondriac, or or so often, or so early. I mean, she describes him as a hypochondriac in the 30s, too. And Mm -hmm. that's a little inconsistent with most of what we know about Harpo, isn't it? We think of him as Mm. being comfortable, at peace, um, you know, down to earth. uh, And and he was indeed all of those things. But I guess mixed in with that, you know, he, he wasn't completely without neurosis. Yeah, we hear a lot about, you know, Groucho's insomnia and Chico's various addictions and so on, you know. But that is, uh, yeah, you know, with Harper, we're constantly told just what a sunny, optimistic person he was, a kind of a life-enhancing person who, you know, if you if you were worried or, or distressed, you know, a few a few hours in his company would would put you on the on the in the right direction again. Yeah, it it is it is a true anomaly. But all of these things can be considered manifestations of early childhood trauma. Children that encounter trauma at an early age can often go on to have issues even into their adult life, whether that is addictive behavior, whether that is insomnia, whether that is a hyperfixation on the health of their body. Yeah, you think so? Let's talk about that a little bit. The, the Marx Brothers as traumatized children. Um, yeah. I, and there is there is some interesting insight into both Minnie and Frenchie in Susan's book. She knew Frenchie. Yes, probably the biggest surprise uh, to answer your earlier question for me uh, is where she says that Harpo was Minnie's favorite, which we we certainly don't get anywhere else. Mm-mm. Yes, indeed. And in fact, she's she says that with the awareness, I think, that she is. Um, countering the popular conception of, of Chico as Minnie's favorite. 
Um, but yes, she says Harpo had been his mother's favorite, which is a great start in life for anyone. Some have concluded that Chico was her favorite, but the brothers agreed that while she indulged Chico more than the others because she couldn't resist his charm, Harpo was the most special to her. Hmm. Hmm. That's a, that's a real assertion, and she's uh, Susan is not only asserting that herself, but she's saying the brothers were aware of that too. They didn't think Chico was the favorite. And although Susan didn't meet Minnie the way she, she did get to know Frenchie a little bit, uh, she does have quite a bit of insight, it seems, into Minnie, which I guess is received through knowing everyone else in the family. She says at one point in Chapter 4, I think Harpo really wondered if he might have had a career at all if his mother hadn't shoved him into a vaudeville act full of unemployed relatives. Uh, that sort of corroborates a, a, a point we've made before on this podcast, that uh, if Harpo had been a solo, if he had been an only child, or if this hadn't mm. been the family business, it doesn't seem like his stage character ever would have come to life. And his stage character, if I'm recalling correctly, sort of came out of, again, I'm going to use trauma, like little T trauma of when he was shoved onto stage and he froze, he urinated himself. And then from that moment on, he was like, I will never say another word on stage again. I mean, is that sort of taken as truth? Like that's how it sort of came to be that he was a a silent performer? Yeah, more or less. I think it's a little, I think that's a little reductive, but yes, I think that's basically yeah. it. I, I mean, he did speak in the act for some time after that. Um, mm -hmm. and seems to have abandoned speech altogether um, around the time of home again, when Uncle Al didn't really bother to give him much dialogue. Um, okay. But I think it was something he was always uncomfortable with. And certainly that first, uh, you know, pants wedding experience on stage in Coney Island was you know, the beginning of, of uh, the, that was the writing on the wall, I guess, as far as him needing to find another way to be a performer. Um, it's also pointed out um, by Susan and others that uh, he wasn't a little kid when that happened. Harpo was 19. I mean, he was, you know, a, a man already uh, when that took place. And that takes it into a whole other world of, of trauma. But that, but that also speaks to the fact that there was probably some underlying anxiety, that there was probably some underlying insecurity on his part, which, you know, again, moving on to life, he, you know, into his adult life, he became a much more comfortable performer, but that anxiety and neurosis has to go somewhere. So maybe it went into his concerns about his own physical health. Do you think ultimately did Minnie do well by the boys? Did she, did she help them more than she hurt them? Um, I like to say yes, even in the selfish sense of posterity, because she helped to give us what we have today. You know, if she hadn't been the mother that was like, we are going to make this happen. And she just been like, well, I hope you all figure it out for yourselves. Then we quite possibly wouldn't have had, you know, the Marsh brothers as we, as we know them today. So in terms of, did she help or hurt them more individually? That's, I guess, up for each brother to decide. But I think in terms of where we stand, it was beneficial to us. It's interesting that while Groucho kind of mimicked Minnie's stage parenting, partic particularly with Melinda, um, you know, kind of pushing Melinda out on stage, uh, maybe not totally against her will, but Melinda wasn't that interested in performing and she did it for a while to please her father. Um, Harpo does not seem to have ever had those kind of instincts. Um, there doesn't seem to have been uh, anything anyone had to do in order to get his approval other than just 
be decent, you know, behave kindly and, and decently. Uh, Bill Marx, of course, is a genuinely great artist and performer in his own right as a musician. Um, and I'm sure it's obvious that Harpo's influence had something to do with that, but Bill seems to have arrived at that by himself. And uh, some of that is very touching in the book too, how genuinely proud and awed Harpo is by uh, Bill's virtuosity and by his his blooming life as a musician. Absolutely. And the fact that whatever interests his children had, he made sure to nurture and facilitate those. Like you want a shed to go build things in, I'll make sure you have a shed to go build things in. And, you know, um, Minnie wants, you know, her, her, her animals and her menagerie, we're going to make that happen, you know, and he, he didn't have any agenda in his mind. And his mother, you know, no judgment, but she did have an agenda in mind. And that is what led her boys to becoming what, what they ultimately became. I guess one difference is that Harpo's children grew up in an environment of financial security. Um, and Minnie had to sort of rally the family to, you know, activate their, their time in order to try to support themselves. And uh, that was yeah. a very different situation. Which, which brings it back to the question of if the family had been economically stable, do you think Minnie would have encouraged her children to explore, you know, creative outlets and, and performing or would it have just been a, a non-discussion? It is interesting to speculate, isn't it? When you when you think of how Groucho honed in on on the the least indication in Melinda that that there was some sort of performing talent there, and 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 you know pushed her onto the world stage. It, it, if Bill had been his son with that genuine and, and substantial musical talent, Groucho would have been on cloud nine, wouldn't he? I suppose so. Yeah. Although I, I don't know. I mean, he he wasn't particularly encouraging of Arthur's. Um, development as a writer. Uh, I think Arthur and Bill are very different situations um, with regard to th- the way they applied their respective creative. And I think with Arthur as well, it was it was encroaching on his own turf a little too much, I think, you know, whereas, you know, music wouldn't have been. And, you know, he certainly wasn't jealous of, of, of Melinda's talent, you know. So I yeah. think if she, you know, if she, if she had, uh, if she had had the, the musical gifts that, 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 as we know, Bill, Bill has, um, I, I think Groucho would have just been uh, unendurable about it. Well, Susan also speaks to, I know you guys have spoken to this before, uh, to Groucho's certain areas of insecurity. She she also speaks in the book to how she felt that he tended to avoid, quote unquote, very literary types because she felt that Groucho felt insecure in their presence, which, as you said, if Bill, or, uh, you know, if, if if his child had been more like sort of literarily inclined, would he have found that, like you said, an encroachment upon the realm of Groucho and the realm of witticism? Yeah, there is a uh, some vaguely trophy collecting quality to Groucho's association with some boldface names. You know, it was important to Groucho to be friends with T.S. Eliot, for example, you know, to be known for being friends with T.S. Eliot. Um, But Mm -hmm. Harpo, in a much more, you know, quiet and personal way, you know, Susan just says, Harpo considered FDR a friend and, you know, they were pen pals, you know. Uh, But Harpo doesn't ever seem to have gone to any... uh, Well, no, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say Harpo doesn't seem to have tried to point that out a lot. But Susan says he showed FDR's letter around to everybody proudly. So I guess he was he was proud of the association. But it does seem less needy and more humble in in Harpo's case than in Groucho's. 
One thing, again, uh, that I noticed that Susan mentioned about Harpo is his um, very strong desire to be involved in uh, civil rights and how he also um, helped to raise funds for the Scottsboro Boys. And yeah. I'm wondering, as you know, the, the both of you are you know such learned experts on this area, were any of the other brothers equally as concerned about civil rights? Groucho the most, I think, but but nothing like as actively as, as Harpo. Uh, okay. Chico and Zeppo, I think, not at all. Okay. I think that's right. Yeah, I think Groucho's yeah. heart was in the same place as Harpo's as far as social and political convictions. But Harpo was kind of an activist, uh, and Groucho was not. Okay. Interesting. All right, yeah, so that just really stuck out to me that, you know, to, to do something like that was very much an act of bravery at the time. And that that was quite commendable to, to hear that he was actively involved in that. You know, in Harpo Speaks, there's some uh, the beautiful stuff with Harpo remembering what election day was like in Yorkville when he was a child. Um, and of course, this is in the Tammany Hall period in, in New York history. But, you know, that, that there would be a bonfire uh, on the block and... Um, everybody would would go vote and and would uh spend the whole night waiting for the returns to come in um harpo seems to cherish the memories of spending those evenings with grandpa leif and maybe that was sort of baked into him from an early age that politics was something to pay attention to to do what you could to influence and to unapologetically state your your feelings about absolutely and as a lower socioeconomic Jewish family, um, they were going to be heavily influenced by politics, whether or not they wanted to. They say, what, what is that, that, you know, if, if you say that, you know, oh, I, I'm not into politics, I don't do politics, well, politics are going to do you. So you, you, you need to be involved. And those that are the most impacted are often, you know, people like the, the Marx Brothers when they, were, when they were younger, where they, when they, you know, were lower socioeconomic family. Yes, indeed. Somebody, and I think it's Esther Muir from A Day at the Races. Um, I love her. Yeah. Um, In a 1937 interview, she says that Harpo is an expert on world politics. Right. And we've sort of scoffed at that in the past, haven't we? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And maybe he really was. He at least seems to be maybe a bit more aware and a bit more concerned. Yeah, and he seems to have had a um, a very reasonable, well-balanced sense of how to use his notoriety and celebrity uh, to affect change a little bit where he thought it was important uh, without letting it consume his image in any way. I mean, we don't think of Harpo as, uh, oh, yes, the proponent of Israeli independence or, oh, yes, Harpo, the friend to the labor movement. But uh, he was all those things. He seems to have done them more or less quietly out of a sense of duty. Yeah, he he wasn't trying to get a sense of identity from that, nor was he trying to detract from the movement with his presence, but he wanted to do what he knew was right. Um, ben Hecht and, and even more so Alexander Wolcott may have been key influences on him in that way. They were both very, you know, socially and actively involved. And Hecht was certainly a big influence as far as Israel goes, wasn't he? Yes, some of the World War II stuff is is fairly bracing. We know Harpo got 
a look at what was happening in terms of the persecution of Jews in Europe when he went on his Russian adventure. Um, but, but more than that, you know, Susan is uh, willing in a way that some people who write about this era in Hollywood aren't to talk about the America First Committee and Walt Disney and uh, that there was a very... And their own parents as well in, in that respect. Yeah. We're a, we're a little anti-Semitic and, and her mother said some very regrettable things about Jewish people in general and Harpo in particular. One other thing that I had noticed in here that was, again, also kind of a little bit of a throwaway line is that Harpo was a teetotaler. I was not aware of that, that he had just suddenly given up drinking. And do you know more about why he just quit drinking one day? I don't. Do you know anything about that, Matthew? No, no, I don't. No. I mean, I, I wonder if it was, does, can you remember, does she say roughly when that was? No, she, she just said Harpo having given up drinking years ago. All right. I mean, I wonder if it, if it's um, if it's associated with some sort of health issue or uh, you know hypochondriacal issue. I know I know the reason why he's always in plimsolls in those later appearances is because he thought that was better for his heart, didn't he? Hmm. He thought soft soft soul soft soul shoes were were better for his heart, and that's why in all those late television appearances he, he's always wearing plimsolls. That's so cute. I love that image. Mm. Yeah, yeah so, so this here, it just says Harpo, who'd given up alcohol years before. I, I guess he had one incident, had gotten himself thoroughly and tearfully drunk and had to be put to bed. That This was um, a weekend at San Simeon in October of 1933. So she said he'd given up alcohol years before 1933. And then I guess he got, you know, blotto that one night and then that was it. So it was years before 1933 that he gave up drinking. So I'm just wondering if he had a bad incident or, again, like you said, if he was just like... Alcohol actually isn't good for me, so I'm going to stop. Yeah, maybe some of the hypochondria had to do with just an instinct for self-preservation that made him realize that I'm going to go down a bad path if I keep drinking. He certainly had examples in his life of people who who created real problems for themselves with alcoholism. And we know... Harpo- though it's interesting that none of the brothers did, though, isn't it? Not, not one of the five had that as an yeah. issue. Very true. Yeah, which is which is not always the case, especially in a big showbiz family. Mm. Absolutely. We know that Harpo was, uh, in, in real life, Harpo was, uh, t- to use the word in, in the broadest sense, he was sober, you know? He wasn't a crazy guy, actually. Um, Susan's uh, phrasing of it, she says, Harpo attracted offbeat people, but he himself was not offbeat. He was unusual in another way. He was abnormally sane. Uh, so maybe that's part of it, too. Harpo didn't really need to get rip-roaring drunk because he was already in an expanded state of consciousness. Yet yeah, to to jump off that point, there's a line where she just, it's a very small line um, where she says there was an inner peace in Harpo. And I remember reading that and just thinking like, that's not something that you would think if you had just first experienced Harpo on the screen. You're like, this guy's the opposite of peaceful, you know, the, the chaotic energy. But on rewatching some of their films over the last couple of weeks, I tried to focus on what the brothers were doing when they weren't speaking. And he is definitely the most peaceful and he's the most still. Chick, Chico, you know, tends to stare intently. He does this weird thing with his hand where he squeezes and pushes his thumb forward. Groucho will play with his cigar and Zeppo's like, thinking about what he wants to do for lunch, you know, but with, with, um, with Harpo, there is a stillness there that you don't see in the other brothers when the attention isn't focused on him. It's, it's kind of cool. 
Well, I wouldn't want to let this episode go by without addressing some of what Susan has to say about the Marx Brothers as a team. She had a front row seat for the last part of the team's career. Um, and in a way, it's nice to get a detailed account of what was going on behind the night in Casablanca and Love Happy and, and some of the Harpo Chico nightclub tours without a lot of detail about the stuff we know much more about that comes before that. She is particularly detailed in her account of the genesis of Love Happy um, and two um, sort of uh, primordial versions of it that Hecht and Harpo had been kicking around, one with the title Bryant Park and another with the title Please Die. <laughs> we could put put both of these, I guess, on our list of the great unproduced uh, Marx Brothers, or at least Harpo projects. Uh, Matthew, more than anyone I know, and probably more than anyone in the world, you have investigated how Love Happy came to be. What did you find in Susan's book that uh, confirmed or contradicted your findings? Well, broadly, it 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 confirmed. I mean, there there are a, a few sort of minor differences. Um, she seems uh, certain that that um, Chico came in, you know, after Harpo had agreed with Cowan that that, that they were going to make the film. Um, whereas I'm still more inclined to think that it that it was the other way around. That it was it was Chico being there. That 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 sort of made Harpo think well okay fair enough I can I can live with that and this will at least you know give me the chance to to get the thing out but um other than that yes I mean it was it was um all all that stuff that <laughs> that um I I paid someone to to get out of Margaret <laughs> Herrick um all, all neatly summed up for me so uh, yeah um but yes that please die that that other idea um does sound really really good I mean she, she says that they eventually decided it wasn't going to be the, the best thing for Harpo to do, but it is it is a, an amusing idea. Um, so I wish he had, wish Hecht had, uh, you know, pressed on with that. But she does, I mean, it, she does sort of gl- gloss over. She doesn't really talk at length about anything, does she? She's she's always in a hurry to get on to the next thing. So I would have I would have liked to know a bit more about what it was like living with Harpo when they were shooting that film because it does appear to to have been about the most miserable professional experience of his life uh and and you know coming home every day from from shooting uh, you know a, a, another batch of scenes in this film which not only does he not want to do but which is his own vision being completely you know prostituted um I would have loved to have known a bit more about that the book is satisfying partly because of the quality of her writing and the skill of her storytelling. Um, but you also get the sense that she doesn't like talking about herself um, and is kind of telling you what she thinks is important for you to hear. This is what the Marx Brothers and Harpo fans who are going to read this book are interested in. And now we'll move on. She's sentimental about Harpo, but she's unsentimental about just about everything else. Mm. Do you think that she sort of saw herself almost as, as a supporting actress in his life? She does say that um, Mrs. Harpo Marx was her great role and that that was, you know, her true calling and that was the meaningful part of her life. And um, it's the kind of thing, if someone else said that about someone, it would seem demeaning, um, you know. Um, but, uh, and, and we must say too that 
in the later part of the book, which takes place after Harpo's death, she also does a very nice job telling the story of what she had to do to sort of find her own identity and figure out who Susan was without Harpo. And she did that and, and accomplished things and ran for public office and served uh, on the school board. And, um, you know, she had a full life uh, without Harpo and, and after Harpo. But uh, yeah, I think she, I think being his wife was where she found uh, meaning. Mm. Yeah. Oh, one thing that, that um, I, I don't think will have any particular natural home, so I'll just throw it in here now. <laughs> um, I, I was very interested, I didn't know, that that uh, very strange uh, TV show he made, The Wonderful World of Toys, uh, was shot almost immediately after Chico's death. Um, and, he, and he was still extremely raw from, from the fact that Chico had just died. Now, I haven't gone back and looked at it again yet in the light of that, but I certainly will. Um, I, I don't think that's come up in any other um, source, has it? No, and I, when I read that, I wished we had known that or thought of it when we talked about uh, the Marx Brothers TV collection and... Uh, we, mm. we discussed that appearance, but not from that angle. And you're right, that is really something to think about. Another subject we should discuss is the photos in the book. You know, the book is, has a pretty generous photo section uh, with some great images, including some that were new to me. Um, one photo that in particular that I found myself staring at for a long time is a photo of Harpo in Russia. Uh, that I don't think I'd seen before. It's Harpo in Leningrad sitting at a long table uh, surrounded by people. And um, it's just, uh, we we know so little about that Russian trip, or I guess we know less than we'd like to, is what I should say. Um, I found that very interesting to look at Harpo in that picture. Uh, any pictures in the book that jumped out at you or that got your eye for a while? All the candid shots are my favorite. Like the ones of like, you know, him clowning with Billy or they're making the same kind of pseudo gooky face. Oh, know, yes. Just, yeah. It's just charming, you know, because so many of the brothers photos, they're, you know, they've got their wigs and their costumes <clears throat> and their, their mustaches and their, their personas are what you're seeing, not the person. So it's just kind of cool to see them just not being on for a minute. Like just, oh, this is probably my favorite one. The one of Harpo just in his little red hat, just kind of painting. Yeah. I, I love the stillness of that. It's beautiful. I, I have a photo in my hallway uh, taken on the set of uh, Duck Soup. You undoubtedly see it. It's the one where uh, Chico and Groucho are at the piano together. Um, yes. And uh, Groucho's wearing, you know, his, his nightgown and cap. And they're just sort of quietly sitting together at the piano. And it's just like this this moment of calm amidst all the manufactured zaniness uh one here there's a the, the uh, a very well-known photo obviously uh, of um salvador dali sketching him but it does it does prompt mm. um prompt um something that i meant to mention earlier when you said noah that um she was sentimental about harpo but but not about much else uh, and it's a very amusing part isn't it where she tells the story about throwing that harp uh, with the barbed wire yes. that, that, he, that dali <laughs> made for harpo uh throwing it out with the trash and, and that she says um um I, I, I've been told it would have been worth a great sum of money to an art collector or a museum, but it really and truly was a big piece of junk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of those moments where I, I think I actually said out loud, what? 
Like, I'm just reading like you did what? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I love that. I love the authority with which she says, you know, it was really and truly a big piece of junk. Like no matter how much you think you want to see it, believe me, you don't. And also, even though I, I think I knew that the reason that harp doesn't exist is because Harpo's <laughs> wife threw it away. But until reading Susan's account of that, I hadn't ever really given much thought to how that worked literally that a couple of garbage men in <laughs> a couple of garbage men in the california desert must have been making their rounds and come across this thing oh my god someone's yeah. throwing away a harp is that barbed wire <laughs> yeah. well yeah throw it on the pile with everything else there actually yeah. is we must concede at least a small chance that it does still exist um this in the same way that humor risk might still exist yeah, or it could have ended up on a scrap metal heap. Yeah, I mean, it's like the end of uh, Citizen Kane, you know, throw all that junk and Rosebud goes on the fire, isn't it? You know? yeah. But um, I, I would imagine if it does survive, it survives purely because it was felt to be uh, a novelty, but, but with no idea what it is beyond that, because uh, I think we would, we would have seen it if there was any awareness of what it was. I'm sure that's right, yeah. It was interesting for me um, reading the book, particularly um, my recent reread. I read it in July when it came out, and then I've read it over the last week to prepare for this. Um, And in between those two readings, I got this other set of insights into Susan, because um, while working on If You Get Near a Song, Play It, the Marx Brothers in Music, um, if you saw that, you know that there's a a long segment about Les Marsden and his uh, association with the Marx Brothers and particularly his relationship with Susan. And Les was extremely generous and for the first time granted some access to his vast archives. And because of that, in that presentation, which anyone can watch anytime on YouTube or at noahdiamond.com, there are excerpts from Les's interviews that he conducted with Susan back when he first met her. And um, it's wonderful to hear her voice, and it's really interesting stuff, and uh, we can all be grateful to Les for that. But, you know, Susan, in those recordings, tells some of the same stories she tells in the book, and it's slightly different. Um, but that was interesting. I feel like I've heard this, you know... T- I've heard this from her twice just recently uh, after a lifetime of, of not having a whole lot of her voice on hand. One of the things that she says in one of the excerpts, in one of the excerpts that Les uh, shared that I haven't found in any other source is Susan says that one of the reasons Harpo had such a distinctive and such a soft sound when he played the harp is because Harpo had special fingertips. Um, the way she describes it in Les's tapes or in If You Get Near a Song, Play It, she says he had wonderful big paddy fingertips. So b- wonderful big soft paddy fingertips. Um, and most harpists have very calloused, brittle fingers from all the practice. Harpo, for one reason or another, had pillowy fingertips. Um, and that was an important part of why he had the sound that he had. Um, Susan doesn't actually go quite that far in the book, but she does She does sort of brush up against that point. Uh, Harpo's magic was all his own. It couldn't be taught. It was all in his fingertips and his soft touch. Okay, well, we know that 
now what she's talking about there, but um, she actually doesn't go into as much detail. It's really interesting, isn't it? It's just a, a physical mm. anomaly about the man that had a, a pretty important effect on his art. So one of the things that I had noticed, um, you know, in my many, many viewings of the Marx films is that there is this repeated, you know, pattern or trope, if you will, of poker, of card games, of gambling, and the Ace of Spades seems to, to pop up all the time. Um, as a social worker, the, the term ace kind of catches my ear for a different reason. And when you're in a social services, humanities, mental health based field, ace stands for adverse childhood event or um, an event or a series of events, whether acute or chronic, that put a person at a uh, risk, shall we say, of uh, deviant or maladaptive behavior later in life. Um, ACEs can be anything from what we would call big T trauma, violence, abuse, or what we'd call little T trauma. And that could be uh, maybe dad drinks a little bit too much, or maybe mom struggles with depression, right? So there's this whole spectrum of things that people can be um, influenced by in an adverse way during childhood um, that can affect them growing up. And uh, when we look at Harpo Speaks and, you know, a little bit speaking of Harpo as well, especially Harpo Speaks when he talks about his life, you know, he does have sort of a fun, flippant way of addressing topics and incidents that are actually quite traumatic, that are actually something that would have a major impact on a child or a teenager or even a young adult um, kind of growing up. So that sort of, um, you know, incongruous and, you know, non-intentional alignment of the ace and the ace was something that sort of um, stuck out to me. And I was wondering if, you know, especially looking at Harpo's Speaks, if there was any incidents that you wanted to touch on from his childhood that you think, wow, that may have had some larger impact on him that he didn't really delve into in the book or that may have manifested later. Another one that, that obviously shocked me most when I read it at the age of about 11 or 12 was the uh, the the account of a, of sexual molestation um and and particularly the what really stuck in my mind was that vivid detail of him washing his hands in a, in a barrel of pickled onions yeah to, to have that specific and he and he talks about the smell of pickled onions being yeah. something that that for year for years afterwards you know brought it back that, that that's very very vivid and telling i think absolutely and to touch on um the Oscar Levant book that we had discussed very briefly, he had a lifelong fear of, I want to say it was yellow roses based on a traumatic event um, in high school. Um, I want to say it was he had entered into some kind of a competition. Maybe it was a dance competition and he was awarded the winner, but as a joke. And so he was embarrassed in front of the whole school and they gave him yellow roses. Um, I, I may be getting that story incorrect, but there was something small that for the rest of his life was a triggering point because of that trauma. Like, you know, you mentioned with Harpo and that the smell and that just kind of brought him back to that traumatic incident. Pickled onions and yellow roses. <laughs> There's a title of a biography for you. One of the reasons we know that we can trust Susan on the facts, besides the idea that she does seem to be interested in getting things right and doesn't have an entertainer's need to embroider stories as much as, say, Harpo or Groucho does. But there's the fact that the book is edited and, to some extent, co-written by Robert Bader. And Robert Bader, we all know to be a rigorous fact-checker. In fact, many of us contact Robert Bader when we're trying to... <laughs> 
uh, <laughs> check facts ourselves. Um, and so knowing that uh, the book, although I think Susan's voice completely uh, has, you know, had the Bader treatment, does make me think that there's probably nothing in it that's likely to just not be true. Um, and there is some reassurance in that. I think that connects to a larger point that uh, I found myself thinking about a lot when reading the book, which is that I think most Marx Brothers fans are aware that uh, over the decades since the Marx Brothers left the earth, uh, for a long time, there was just not much official product, you know, after Groucho died. Uh, there was very little uh, official Marx Brothers stuff out there. Um, and uh, it was not that easy for unofficial Marx Brothers product to get out there um, because the entities uh, responsible for administering uh, licensing and uh, the rights to the Marx Brothers characters um, at some times at, uh, in the past seem to put a little more effort into preventing things from happening than making things happen. And some people uh, are used to that having been the case and talk as though it still is. But I think we might acknowledge uh, and be grateful for the fact that this has changed quite a bit lately. And a lot of that is because of Robert Bader's administration of Marx Brothers, Inc. And who knew that Susan's father is in the background of the Lydia scene? Right? Yeah. <laughs> that was that was news to me. Yes, which means that uh, Harpo and Susan's children can see both of their grandfathers in Marx Brothers movies. Because mm, so of cool. Frenchie's oh. uh, moment in monkey business. Well, it looks like that brings us down to the end of another one. I love the book, and I've certainly loved discussing it with both of you today. Um, and certainly encourage our listeners to read the book. Uh, it's really not to be missed. And I think in what has become an increasingly crowded bookshelf, this is one of those volumes that we can call essential. Hannah, as the guest of honor, do you have any thoughts about what music we might close with? Well, I, I think we can give a little homage to, uh, to Mr. Fleming and maybe end on Lydia. There you go. There you have it. <laughs> I think I did that with a, a slightly uh, more cowardly touch than Bob used to, but <laughs> we'll get the hang of it. <laughs> Bob, Bob really is so good at making guests uncomfortable with that question, and I'll, I'll, I'll be less polite next time. <laughs> oh, Lydia! Yes, Lydia! Have you met Lydia? Lydia, the tattooed
gets littler And when she sits, she sits on Hitler Brothers Council Podcast is produced by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!